I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we'll begin reading at verse 19. Just a few verses there. John chapter 20, we'll begin reading at verse 19, but before we do that, let's come before God for a prayer of illumination to ask His Holy Spirit's help. So, will you pray with me? Uh, Father, You have promised to give us Your Spirit. You have given us Your Spirit through Jesus Christ. And now, as we open up Your Word together, we pray that You would be working in each of our hearts. That, Lord, You would illumine our hearts and our minds. That this Word would not sound like a foreign language to us, but that, Lord, You would cause it to ring true. That, Heavenly Father, You would open us uh, to the calling You have placed upon us. That, Lord, through this Word, we would be changed. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit would be each, each, with each of us as we, as we read, as we listen. I pray, Father, for myself as I lead your people through this Word, that you would give me what I stand in need of uh, to be a faithful preacher of this good news. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, turning our attention then to John 20. Beginning at verse 19, please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to keep it open there on your lap as we will be referring to it so often. As we come to this word, I want you to think for a minute. I'm going to read you a list of names. And I want you to think about what these individuals have in common with each other. All right? Gina Carano. J.K. Rowling, Jordan Peterson, and Franklin Graham. What do you think those four people have in common? All four of those individuals, in some way, shape, or form, have been canceled by our culture, or culture has attempted to cancel them. Gina Carano was a very famous actress playing a favorite part, a famous, a favorite character on the Star Wars show, show, The Mandalorian. And she refused to use the pronouns of our day and age the way this day and age would have people use them. And she was kicked off the show and relinquished to the rubbish pile of human beings because she would not go with the narrative of our time. J.K. Rowling very famous author, perhaps sold millions upon millions upon millions of books in the Harry Potter series, refused to go with the 
the bending of genders. And culture has been trying to cancel her ever since. Jordan Peterson, sociologist, commentator on society, psychiatrist from Canada, who speaks of the way things ought to be uh, very freely and very authoritatively. And culture has tried to cancel him over and over and over again. And Franklin Graham, the chairman or CEO or leader of Samaritan's Ministries, um, a leading Christian evangelical in the world, was going to go on a speaking tour through Europe. And he was canceled for every speaking engagement because he holds to the view of the Bible forbidding homosexual practice. And so he was literally canceled. What does it mean to be canceled? You know this. We, We hear it all the time in the news. But it's when someone, an individual, does not want to to think or to talk or present themselves in a way that fits with the narrative of the world that is around us. And so people gang up on them in a way. Sometimes it's through social media. That's kind of where it started. But now it's even in real life. Where these individuals who do not go with the flow of the, the narrative of our day, they are shamed. They are manipulated. Perhaps their businesses are boycotted. In whatever way the mob can uh, bring... Um, Something against them, they do so with the hopes of canceling them. At one point, you would have, it would have been just um, a social canceling, but that is getting more and more to the point where people are being physically canceled because they do not accept the narrative of our day. So as we think about this passage this afternoon, I want us to think about it in this way. That this is the action that I believe John wants God's people to take up as we think about this short little story. I believe he wants the church to identify with Jesus' story because it overpowers the narrative of our world. That he is asking us, he is calling us to identify with Jesus' story because it overpowers the narrative of our world. As Christians, whenever we attempt to shed light on the sins of the world and how our world is, as it seems as we may hear or even say ourselves, going to hell in a handbasket, we're viewed as bigots, racists, homophobics, we're intolerant, we're called intolerant, And why? Because we don't go with the narrative of the world that is around us. That we we seek to serve a God who is above all of these things. And the world around us does not understand this. But if you've been a believer for very long, if you've read your Bible very much, then you know that Jesus promises one thing. Promises us all one thing with regard to this. He says just a few chapters before what we read tonight, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So, this evening as we look at this then, how then does the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
help us to answer the narrative of this world. Right? Because that's the context of this passage. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ help us to answer the narrative of this world? Well, the first thing is we have to recognize that Jesus' disciples will experience reasonable fear. The disciples of Jesus Christ will experience reasonable fear. Think, think with me, children, think about your Sunday school lessons. As you've gone through these years of Sunday school, parents, you can think this too, but Abraham, he goes to Egypt. He's scared of Pharaoh, so he lies about his wife Sarah because he's afraid of the narrative of the day. Moses was hidden in a basket among the reeds of the Nile because his mother was fearful of the narrative of the day to kill all Hebrew baby boys. Gideon hid in a wine press to, to work his grain. Why? Because he was afraid of the Midianites. David hid in caves because he was hunted by King Saul. David did not fit the narrative of the day. Christians, as we move into the New Testament, they hid or scattered because they did not fit the narrative of the day because they were doing something different than what the church of the day had accepted for generations. Even today, believers around the world meet secretly in fear because they do not fit the narrative of the day. How about you? Have you chosen not to engage someone for fear of what they might say, for fear of what they might do, because you do not fit the narrative of our day? See, it's pretty reasonable to have fear. It's a pretty common thing. But look here in this passage, how did the disciples are experiencing this fear. They're hiding. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Okay? They've locked themselves in a house for fear of those who are in authority of in the day. Notice John makes it very, very clear when this is happening. First part of that. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Go back, if you're in your Bible, look at verse 18. What is this day? What is this evening of that day? It's the day of the resurrection. Okay? So this is the evening of the resurrection. The disciples are scared and they have locked themselves in a room. Now, we have the advantage of 2,000 years of living as New Testament Christians. So I need you to imagine yourselves, you are one of those disciples who've been following Jesus and you now saw him hanging on the cross, right? You don't know what happens after that, right? Think about this for a minute. Jesus has died. The person you have followed for three years has died on a cross, the most gruesome, awful way to die. This is your leader. This has just happened. Of course, as we can look at the verses before this, verse 18 and before that, where there's these reports 
that he has been raised from the dead. But what is that all about, right? We know. We have, we've had two year, 2,000 years to think about it. They did not know. What? People aren't raised from the dead. You can hear their thoughts. You can imagine what their thoughts might be. What does this mean? And if this really did happen, what are the Pharisees like now? They were really ticked off at him when he's alive. How ticked off are they going to be now that he's raised from the dead? Are they going to come for us? Are they going to come rip us out of our beds at night and throw us up on a cross? What are they going to do to us? How angry are they? How mad are they? They killed him. He's supposedly raised from the dead. What do we do now? You can imagine. You and I would probably lock ourselves for fear of the Jews in a room too. Remember, they only had the Old Testament and three years with Jesus to understand what was going on. And you know from the the Gospels and the stories of the disciples with Jesus, they weren't very good at catching what he was talking about. They often misunderstood what he meant by his kingdom. They often misunderstood what it meant that he was going to die and be raised again. They often misunderstood what he was all about. They did not really have a good grasp on what it meant to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ or be part of his kingdom. So you can imagine how scared they were at his closest confidants because they did not fit the prevailing narrative of their day. That narrative said, Jesus is not the Messiah. He cannot be the one who ushers in this eternal kingdom. He cannot, He is not, He never will be. And since you have aligned yourself with Him, you better look out. Because we're coming for you. So people, friends, have you ever been challenged to go against the prevailing narrative of your friends, of your associates, those who you know and who know you? Have you ever been swayed to compromise what the Bible clearly teaches for fear of those who might be trying to shame you on social media? Hurt you in some way? Kill you? Cause you some form of loss? Pain? Because you're a Christian. Or because you don't go with the world that is around you. Have you ever had to make a choice that maybe would mean you, you lose your friends, be called a bigot, be accused of being filled with hate, a hypocrite, by those who at best do not know who Jesus really is, or at worst hate him with their very being. Can you, have you chosen a side? And if you have, has it cost you? The fear was very real for the disciples. And if you have had to make those types of decisions, then you know that that fear can be very real for you and me as well. But today is Sunday. And while today is not Easter Sunday, every time we come to a Sunday, we are celebrating what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, the resurrection changes everything. So how does the resurrection change things? 
Well, in this passage, Jesus gives us a better narrative by giving us two gifts. This is why the resurrection changes everything. First is that Jesus gives us himself. Jesus gives us himself. Look at verse 19. Jesus came in and stood among them. Now, as we read that, you probably just read it. Just right over top of it. You've probably read it who knows how many times and just went right over it. But stop and think for a minute. The doors are locked. Jesus comes to them and stands among them. Jesus went and met them where they were. Not just met them where they were, physically speaking, in a locked house. But Jesus met them where they were as they lived. He didn't say, well, I told them I was going to meet them in Galilee. If they can't get up to Galilee, well, that's their problem. I'm here. They have to come to me. No, he goes to them. He understands their fear. He understands their problem. He understands what is going on in the world that is around them. And so he goes to them. Brothers and sisters, it's no different for you and me as we suffer, as we live, as we go around confessing to be Christians. Jesus meets us where we're at. Maybe you're a weak Christian. Maybe you're an old Christian whose whose faith has driven you your whole life. Maybe you're somewhere in between. Maybe you've done terrible things. I don't know. But Jesus here, when we're in fear of the world that is around us, comes and meets us where we're at. And if you've ever experienced significant shame, fear, or people oppressing you in some way, then you know what it's like to have someone draw near when you would otherwise be untouchable by anyone else. Jesus draws near. To do that, He understands what we're going through and He enters our world. But that's not it. Look what He says in verse 20. He shares Himself with us. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Again, words we know. Facts we know. We've had who knows how many Sunday school lessons where it's described to us His hands and His feet and His side. But what is He doing? He's coming to them, and in, the same, in a similar way, he comes to us and says, look, look who I am. He gives himself to them in a way so that they can be assured. He's answering their, their emotions. He's, asking, he's answering all those thoughts in their heads. He's, asking, he's answering the fears of their heart. And he comes and says, look, I really am. I'm here. I am who I am. I am who I said I am. And I am drawn close. He proves to them that He is who He said He is. And that He has brought death to death. Death no longer has any power over those who are in Him. He was standing right there in front of them. They could think no other. There was was no denying it. He gave Himself to them in that way to alleviate their fears. Next, He says, He declares that He is at peace with them. Verse 21, 
And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He actually repeats himself. He says it twice that he is at peace with them. Now remember, what did the disciples do when Jesus was on trial? When he went to the crucifixion? They all ran away. Peter went one step further and denied Jesus publicly three times. They went into hiding. They did not believe what he had told them about himself. They did not believe what he had told them would happen time and time again, telling him that, that he, would be, he would be crucified and that he would be raised again to new life. They have abandoned him. And what does he do when he comes to them? He says, peace be with you. Even though they didn't deserve one bit, he comes and says, I am at peace with you, my friends, my brothers. The Christian faith is not about being perfect. It's not about saying the perfect things. It's not about getting all of our theology just right absolutely every time. It's not about us trying to be Jesus, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior that people look up to us and think we're perfect. Sometimes I think that people believe that they have to be perfect. They have to look perfect. They have to use the right words or they won't be accepted even by people in the church. These men had denied Jesus and run away Yet he comes to them and says, peace be with you. And that's not just to the disciples. Maybe you have denied Christ. Maybe you have run away. Maybe you haven't been the perfect believer, the perfect Christian. And what does Jesus promise? He is at peace with you. Because he's the one that establishes the peace. It's not because of what you and I have done. Now think about the effect that has on you answer those who might be trying to cancel you. Or these disciples. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the one who breathes life into dead men, the one who has brought death to death, and he says that he is at peace with you. What about their threats, their shaming, their attempts to isolate you? Their threats, their attempts to shame you, they come from a place of jealousy, of, of death, of pain, of loss, of arrogance. But Jesus, the Son of God, comes to you and says, I am at peace with you. The world around us, their narrative is finicky. It can change from one week to the next. You'll never know which way is up and which way is down and which way to turn. But Jesus comes to his disciples and says, I am at peace with you. Even though you fail, even though you have failed, even though you will rebel and have rebelled, even though you sin, Jesus makes peace with us. And we can always count on that. So what is then the second help? Right? He gives himself. So what's the second help that he provides us? 
so that we can live even though we may have, be filled with fear. Well, Jesus gives us the power of his spirit to take action in our world. Look at verse 21. And Jesus said to him again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus calls us to step out into our world despite our fear and go in his name, right? He is, right, he, again, think back to where this passage is happening. These guys, they're, they're terrified in this house, locked, hiding. And Jesus says, no, 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 no hiding. We're going out into the world. And so for us, as we, we hide because we're fearful for the, what the world's going to say to us, I don't think it's going to get any better, my Christian friends. And God is saying, look, no hiding. We're going out. We're going to engage this world. I'm sending you into this world as the Lord, as God has sent me. See, the resurrection means that Jesus has all power. The resurrection means that everything Jesus said about himself in his three years of ministry, everything that the whole Old Testament said about him, all those things are 100% true. Think about that. Everything about who he is is indisputable. And he's your friend. He's your savior. He's your brother. He's your king. He is at peace with you. That's why the resurrection makes the difference. He proves who he is and he has drawn close to you and me. And so he sends us out. But he doesn't just send us out in our own power. Look at verse 22. When he has said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And so God gave them this Spirit so that they would be able to go do this. Now it's interesting, there is a a bit of controversy to what's going on here. If you read the commentators and read theologians, they're, they're, they're not quite sure what's going on here because in 50 days there's going to be Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. So what's going on here as Jesus gives them his spirit, gives them the Holy Spirit? It's a good question. What I believe is going on here is that Jesus is giving them a a special measure of his spirit to overcome their fear, to leave that room and go lead the church until the church receives the spirit on Pentecost. That's why he's giving them this extra measure of the Spirit at this time. But this is not uncommon. We see this throughout the Scriptures. So if we go back to the book of Exodus, we see that there were craftsmen who were given the Spirit of God so that they could properly build and construct the things needed for the temple. Micah, when he was preaching in the Old Testament, said that he was given the Spirit of God to preach and proclaim good news. Elizabeth and Zechariah the parents of John the Baptist, are, it's said that they both received the Spirit. So they were able to do what God called them to do. And think about it even from the perspective of in this immediate context of John. The whole Old Testament had been written. Those writers wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They had to have the Spirit enabled to write God's Word. And so it's not an uncommon thing 
for God's people to have a, a special gift of the Spirit to do something very particular. And so again, I believe here, Jesus breathed on them this special temporary gift of the Spirit to get out of that room, go into the world, and lead the church. To engage the church. To begin the work of the book of Acts as they went out in the power of His Spirit. As you've engaged with your neighbors and co-workers, friends, maybe personally, um, I mean in person, or over social media, and you've had to make a choice. Maybe you did not feel very powerful and courageous in the moment. Well, brothers and sisters, because of Pentecost, you and I both have the Spirit in Jesus Christ. That is a gift that every believer has and was given. And so you have the power of Christ living within you by His grace. You have something so much better than even they had. But that's not all. For sure, we're sent. We're sent in the Spirit of the Holy Spirit. We're sent in the power of Christ. We know who He is. We know what He has done. But He sends us with a story, a narrative that is so much better than the world that is around us. Look at what verse 23 says. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, this is a really tricky thing in the Greek. There's a lot of discussion on what this could mean. Some believe that this is talking about the office of the apostles, that as the apostles would go out, whatever they, whenever they forgave or withheld forgiveness, that that would be um, part of that idea of, of discipline and only leaders of the church would, would, would have this ability. But I don't think that's what it means. I think what this is doing is this is telling us about the narrative, the message that as we're sent out, what we have to offer to the world that is around us. Jesus is calling us to, to action, right? He's calling us to action. And so he gives us this narrative. Think about everything that we've talked about, everything that we've read this evening. We have a message of life in Christ, right? He gives himself his resurrection. So we have a message of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a message of peace with God. Because Jesus has accomplished it. This message is, goes out in the power of His Holy Spirit. This is a message of forgiveness and a message, a warning of judgment. And so this is the narrative. This is the story in all of its color, in all of its brilliance, in all of its greatness that we have to answer the world that is around us. That we serve a living Christ. That we are at peace with God. And, you, and they can have peace with God too through Him. And we do so not in our own power, in our own will, in our own ability, but we go so in the power of the Spirit. A power that they can have too. That they can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And if they fail, if they continue in the rebellion, that there is a judgment to come. Now what I believe here is at the end of this story, there is a message to be sold, and it is the Gospel. That is how we answer the world that is seeking to cancel Christians. So have you 
felt ashamed, canceled, restricted, persecuted, put down, marginalized because you don't fit with someone else's narrative. Well, we have a gospel to bring to them. Again, we don't do so sass in a sassy tone, right? That's kind of the, the idea in social media, right? Everybody's a keyboard warrior and they can use all this inflammatory language. We can be sassy, we can be mean, we can be angry. But in the power of the Spirit, we go and we answer these things with hope and love and grace and mercy. And we live in a post-Christian culture that seems like it is ever drawing closer and closer and closer to universally expressing hatred to Jesus Christ and any one of his disciples, any one of his followers. For, that, for now, that may mean that we as believers are mocked. Even the world around us, we're looked upon as a bunch of idiots or hate mongers. That's how the world may see us. Will we hide? We must remember that Jesus has given us Himself. That in Him we have life. We have a living hope. Those who hate us do not offer us life. The world around you, your social media attackers, they are in effect the Romans and the Jews of this day, that's in this passage. And so will we choose the way of life. In Christ. In response to our fears, He has given us His power through His Spirit. So remember, every Sunday, children, every Sunday we gather together because it is the resurrection day that Jesus was raised on this day. Death and those who love it are beaten. They have no hope outside of their immediate inflammatory words. But those who are in Christ have life forever. So, brothers and sisters, I ask you, identify with, with Jesus' story because it overpowers the narrative of this world. Will you pray with me? Our merciful Heavenly Father, we are not deserving of your grace and your mercy. We, if we were to admit it, are more fearful and have less spiritual backbone than those disciples did so long ago. That it would be easy for us to go through our whole life and have, those, have our neighbors, have our co-workers never know that we call ourselves Christians. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we go Sunday to Sunday, as we remember the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would remember the power that You have given to us, that we would remember that Jesus' story is so much more powerful than the story of the world that is around us. Give us courage. Give us hope. Answer the fears that we have. And then, Lord, help us to be winsome, kind, and loving as we show the world a better way, the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this all in His perfect name. Amen.